Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. This morning we're going to be um, looking at um, verses 33 to 39, but I'm going to read for us from verse 21 all the way to 39. So Mark 15, starting in verse 21. And they, that is the soldiers, compelled their passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Let's pray. Father, we are beholding things here in your word that are far too great for us too great for our hearts to feel the weight of what is happening and too great for our minds to truly grasp what happened to Jesus upon the cross. And so we ask for your mercy this morning that as we look to seek to understand that by your spirit you would enlighten our minds and stir our hearts to marvel at our Savior who died. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week, we looked at the the first half of Jesus' crucifixion. The emphasis there, of course, was the mocking of the crowds, which we just read. But through the mocking, we saw that there were certain truths revealed about Jesus' identity. For example, we saw last week that he is, though he's suffering and though he's humiliated, he is in fact the exalted king. Not only that, we saw that he is the selfless 
Savior. The focus is the mocking of the crowds and the identity and the identity of Jesus. But here in verses 33 to 39, the focus shifts. And it turns to the actual death of Jesus, but more importantly, the spiritual significance of his death. Mark gives us a glimpse, not just simply into Christ's physical suffering, but also his spiritual suffering and the effects of that suffering. We have seen over and over again that this was not just an event put on by an angry mob. This was the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit's divine plan in accomplishing the redemption of the world. And the first thing that we need to see here is that Jesus is the bearer of God's divine judgment for sins. Jesus is the bearer of God's divine judgment for sins. Look at verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled the sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Now, what I want to do here is to go backwards. I first want to address the part about Elijah, and then we'll look at the significance of the darkness and Jesus's cry of dereliction from the cross. So Jesus makes this cry with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the people looking on hear this, but they have wrongly interpreted what he said. They think that he's calling for Elijah. Now, there's a few possible reasons for this misunderstanding. The, the, the first possibility is simply this, that, that when Jesus spoke in Aramaic, when he said, Eloi, Eloi, it would have sounded very similar to the name Elijah. Not only that, the other reason why they probably misunderstood is that at this point, Jesus, Jesus is struggling to breathe so greatly while he hangs upon that cross, plus the dryness of his mouth probably made it difficult to speak with any real clarity. This is most likely why someone attempted to give him sour wine to drink. So the people hear this cry on the part of Jesus and decide to wait to see if Elijah might come to rescue Jesus from the cross. Now, I think what's happening here is actually a further mocking of Jesus. It was a commonly held belief that before the Messiah would come, Elijah would come to prepare the way for the Messiah. And so the crowds are thinking, if he's the Messiah, then let's see if Elijah will actually come to rescue him. Now, of course, we know from the Gospel of Mark that Elijah had already come. Jesus tells us that John the Baptist was the Elijah to come who would prepare the way for his coming. Now, they, of course, reject John's message, which is a prelude to us knowing that they will also reject the message of the Messiah because John bore witness to the Messiah. If you reject his messengers, you will reject him. So they are waiting to see if Elijah will come to rescue Jesus from the cross because they've wrongly interpreted his cry of dereliction. But before this moment, before Jesus' cry and before the crowd's response, what we see 
is three hours of complete darkness and silence. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Mark provides one sentence to capture a three-hour period. The sixth hour was noon. At noon, there was a strange darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, that is 3 p.m. What's going on here? Why the darkness? Well, the scriptures often will speak of darkness in reference to judgment. In Amos 8, Amos prophesies about God's coming judgment and how how it will be a day of mourning and lamentation. And this is what we read in Amos 8, verses 9 to 10. On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. Amos 8 is speaking about God's judgment and it's speaking about this very moment when Jesus hangs upon the cross. The sun will go down at noon and he will darken the sky. Also, in the book of Exodus, do you remember what the last plague or or judgment of God was before the angel of death and the killing of the firstborn and, and Israel having the blood of the lamb on their post. Do you remember what happened just before that major event? Exodus 10, 21 to 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. I don't think it's a coincidence that for three days there was darkness over the whole land of Egypt and also for three hours there was darkness over all of Jerusalem while Jesus hung on the cross. It's hard for us to grasp just how dark it would have been both in the Exodus and here in this story. In the Exodus, we're actually told that people did not move. They stayed in their rooms. It was so dark. Remember, there was no electricity and there would have been no natural light whatsoever, no reflection from the moon, nothing like that. Complete darkness over the land. This was a sign of God's judgment against sin and the cry of Jesus only further reveals this. For three hours, Jesus silently hangs upon the cross in utter darkness. But at the ninth hour, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this morning, I'm going to spend a lot of time unpacking the meaning and significance of these words, because there may be no no words more misunderstood than these words of Jesus. What actually happened in this moment? What did Jesus actually experience? What were these words conveying about Christ's death? These are all extremely important questions. And what I want to do is first attempt to explain what it doesn't mean. What it doesn't mean. What do these words not mean? Well, first this. 
When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This doesn't mean that there was some severing between the divine persons of the one triune God. I have heard articulated from pastors, theologians, I used to even say things like this, that there was some kind of disruption of the unity and communion between God the Father and God the Son, like a severing within the triune God. There's almost a breakdown of relationship and conflict within the very Godhead between God the Father and God the Son. Let me be clear. That is utterly impossible because the triune God in his divine essence is immutable and incorruptible. God doesn't change in his essence. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all share the same essence and same divine will. God's being does not fluctuate or change like you or I. There's no potential for change in God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not remotely referring to some breakdown in the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. There is no severing within the triune God. If that were the case, God would cease to be God. It's because of our horrible Trinitarian theology that we do not understand that. Secondly, when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It doesn't mean that God was angry at Jesus or hated Jesus Christ while he hung upon the cross. You will not find a single place in all the scriptures that remotely speak to the notion that while Jesus hung upon the cross, God had hatred towards him. It is true that Jesus bore the righteous judgment of God on behalf of sinners, but that's very different than stating God hated Jesus. Some have tried to convey that this, hate, this hatred by, by suggesting that when Jesus was on the cross, God turned his face away from his son in disgust. In fact, we sang a song last week that conveyed such an idea, how deep the father's love for us, how great the pain of searing loss, loss the father turns his face away, as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. I love this hymn. It's full of such beautiful truth, but it gets this wrong. The father did not turn his face away in disgust and hatred and anger towards Jesus. In fact, the scriptures all throughout demonstrate that with with Jesus obediently offering himself as a sacrifice for sins, God the father was in fact delighting in the obedience of Jesus Christ's willing sacrifice. Let me just give you a few examples. Philippians 2.5, you you have this incredible description of of the humility of Jesus Christ, who, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's at this point where Paul says, therefore, that is, in light of the fact that Jesus was willing to die upon the cross, God has 
highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to, to the glory of God the Father. What's the reason for God highly exalting Jesus? It's Jesus' obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. That doesn't sound like a God who hated Jesus on the cross. Rather, it sounds like a God who delighted in Jesus' sacrificial obedience and therefore exalted him above all other names. Do you remember in the Old Testament, how were the sacrifices seen by God when they were offered with sincerity on the part of the people? We're told the sacrifices in the Old Testament for sin were a pleasing aroma to God. That is, God hated the sin of Israel, but delighted in the sacrifices that were made on behalf of the sins of Israel. And Paul uses the same language in Ephesians 5, 1-2, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Christ hanging upon that cross was a fragrant offering to God, a pleasing aroma. He was pleased with the sacrifice of his son. Now, one other text that makes this so explicit, John 10, 17, Jesus says this, for this reason, the father loves me. Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. The Father loves Jesus precisely because he lay, lays down his life. John Calvin said this, reflecting on this cry that Jesus made. It is not to be understood that the Father was ever angry toward him. For how could he be angry toward his beloved Son in whom he was well pleased? Or how could he appease the Father by his intercession if the Father regarded him as an enemy? You see, it is not hatred between the Father and the Son that overcomes death and accomplishes our redemption. It's the love of the Father and the Son that overcomes death and accomplishes our redemption. As Wynandi states, the deadly cross does not slay the love between the Father and Jesus Rather, the spirit-filled love between the Father and Jesus, a love that is enacted fully on the cross, slays death, allowing Jesus and his Father to experience fully their mutual communion of spirit-filled love. So that's what it doesn't mean. There was no breakdown between the divine persons of the one triune God. There was no hatred from the Father toward the Son. So what does Jesus' cry actually mean then? Well, let me give you my explanation. Jesus' cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In a real sense conveys the consequences of sin and the righteous judgment of God towards sin. Jesus, as the God-man clothed in, him, in his humanity, really did experience some kind of God-forsakenness. For the wages of sin is death, and Jesus on that cross bore in his body the sin of humanity and died. 
The triune God righteously stands in opposition to sin and punish sin by the willing obedience of Jesus Christ in bearing that sin on behalf of the world. It means that in his humanity, Jesus as the Savior truly did feel forsaken by God. In his humanity, he knows God forsakenness, the feeling of God forsakenness better than all of us combined. Jesus on that cross really did experience the curse of God. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Who was he cursed by? Deuteronomy 21.23, which is what Paul makes reference to, gives us the answer. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. Jesus really did bear the curse of God for sin. Later on in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, you have the description of both the blessings and the cursings of God for covenant faithfulness and covenant disobedience. And one of the instructions that Moses gives to the people is that half of the people must go up Mount Gerizim and proclaim the blessings of God. And the other half are to go up Mount Abel and proclaim the cursings of God. And you know what one of the cursings are? Deuteronomy 28, 29. And you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness. You shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness. Jesus was not hated by his father, but he did willingly bear the righteous judgment of God for sin in his body. He really did experience a kind of forsakenness and condemnation from God. As Wynandi says, this suffering, however, that is, he's speaking about the physical suffering, is but the physical expression of an even deeper suffering. Jesus is bearing the weight of sin and its condemnation, separation from God. No earthly human being ever experiences or knows the full evil of sin, nor does anyone anticipate the sheer horror and doomed despair of being separated from God. Yet Jesus now, having assumed humankind's sinful humanity, endures sin's full force and the absolute evil that resides therein, and so experiences its attending helplessness in the face of divine condemnation. This is why the Apostle Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Or as 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed 
So no, there was there was no severing within the Trinity and the father did not hate his son. But Jesus Christ, as the incarnate one, did bear the curse of sin and the full condemnation of sin on our behalf. And in his humanity, he did truly feel forsaken by God. And this is why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But we also need to see this all-important truth. That even in his feeling forsaken, God did not ultimately abandon his son. How do I know this? For several reasons. There are several clues that indicate that Jesus Christ was not abandoned ultimately by God, but was in fact strengthened and upheld by God while he hung on that cross. You could say that on that cross, Jesus both experienced divine condemnation and also divine intervention. Here are the clues. The simple words, my, my God, my God. That's extremely personal. Those words demonstrate that even when Jesus was feeling as though his father had abandoned him, he still had the confidence and the assurance that God was his God. As Calvin states, before stating the temptation, that is, my God, why have you forsaken me? He begins by saying that he betakes himself to God as his God. And thus, by the shield of faith, he courageously expels that appearance of forsaking which presented itself on the other side. In short, during this fearful torture, his faith remained uninjured so that while he complained of being forsaken, he still relied on the aid of God as at hand. Also, Psalm 22 begins with the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it doesn't end there. Turn to Psalm 22. I want us to see this. I am utterly convinced that Psalm 22 are ultimately the words of Jesus. They are his own interpretation of his death and also his prayer. In other words, we're given a glimpse into the mind and heart of Jesus when he suffered. Remember that there was three hours of silence and darkness on the cross before he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I bet you he was praying Psalm 22. Listen to this. I want you to notice that the psalm begins with a cry of abandonment. But as the psalm builds, you see Jesus' trust and confidence that God has not actually ultimately abandoned him. Verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Here's Jesus' moment of despair, right? My God, my God, where are you? But then verse 3, yet, yet, he recalls to mind something true. 
Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. In other words, Jesus is on the cross and he's saying, God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he recalls to his mind the fact that God the Father has been faithful to Jesus' forefathers. But then in verse 6 we see again his despair. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. That comes right out of Mark 15. But then, again, Jesus recalls truth about who he is and how God has been his God. Verse 9, yet... You are he who took me from the womb. You made me to trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. What does that remind you of? His incarnation. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. And then he goes back to his experience of his suffering. This is him expressing what he was viewing and what he was feeling. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my, divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. That's Jesus describing his own suffering. And then you see his request for deliverance in verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And the question is, here's his request, and the question is, does his request get answered? Verse 22 shows us the result of his request. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. In other words, Jesus is calling the great congregation to worship God. Why? Look at verse 28. 24, sorry. Verse 24. Why? For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And look at this. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Do you see that? God did not hide his face from his son when he cried to him. He heard his cry. He heard his cry. And then from verses 25 to 31, you see the result, which is all about the praise of God, because God has vindicated his son. That's why it ends with, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Done what? Accomplished redemption. Do you see the flow? It begins with this, with his feeling abandoned by God, but it ends with him confidently saying, he has not hidden his face 
but is heard when I cry to him. It ends with him praising God in the great congregation. And you know what? We see this same pattern in the gospel narrative itself. Jesus on the cross cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the last thing he cries out is what? Mark doesn't tell us his words, but Luke does. Luke 23, 46, Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Those are not the words of a man who has been abandoned. Those are the words of a man who in the midst of horrendous suffering trusts that his father is with him. It begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it ends with, into your hands I commend my spirit. As Calvin states, for there could not have been a more splendid triumph than when Christ boldly expresses his assurance that God is the faithful guardian of his soul, which all imagined to be lost. But instead of, instead of speaking to the deaf, he betook himself directly to God and committed to his bosom the assurance of his confidence. Jesus, as the divine Son of God, was willingly sent to accomplish the redemptive plan of the Father. He and the Father in love accomplished our salvation. Jesus bore the curse of God for sin on our behalf. And even in his cry of dereliction, he knew that his Father was with him and would ultimately vindicate him. You know what this means, brothers and sisters? Well, for one, there's redemption in Jesus, there's forgiveness of sins, but it also means this. God's silence is not always a revelation of his abandonment. God's silence is not always a revelation of his abandonment. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the heavens were silent. There was no baptism moment where the heavens were open and a voice from heaven declared, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. You would think that there would be that moment here, but there wasn't. Yet even in the silence, those words remain true while Jesus hangs upon the cross. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Brothers and sisters, hear this. In your moments, in your seasons of darkness, where you feel forsaken by God and you feel that the heavens are silent. Remember this. God's seeming silence is not a revelation of his abandonment, but rather a call for you to a deeper faith. Here we see Jesus as the bearer of divine judgment for sin. Secondly, because he is the bearer of divine judgment for sin, Jesus has opened the way to God. He has opened the way to God. Look at verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. We're told that at the moment of Jesus' last breath, the curtain was literally ripped in two from the top to the bottom. 
In other words, Mark wants to make clear that the death of Jesus is the cause for the curtain in the temple being torn. We are beholding the salvific effect of Jesus' death. The curtain has been torn from top to bottom. What's significant about that? Well, the temple, the meeting place between God and Israel, was, was broken into different parts. For example, you had the, the Gentile court. There were other parts as well. And then you had the holy place and then the most holy place. The place where the mercy seat was, where God chose to manifest his Shekinah glory. Now, what separated the holy place from uh, the holy place from the most holy place or the holy of holies was this extremely thick curtain. No one was permitted into the most holy place or the holy of holies except for the high priests, but only once a year on the day of atonement in which he would atone for his own sins and for the sins of all the people. That curtain symbolized to the people of Israel that though God had chosen to dwell amongst them, there was still, in fact, a barrier to their being fully able to behold the glory of God and live. There was still a limitation to their access to God. And here's why. Because in the end, the animals that were sacrificed were never actually able to take away the sin of the people. In Hebrews chapter 10, over and over again, you have the writer of Hebrews contrasting the effectiveness of Jesus' death to deal with sin and the ineffectiveness of the animals to deal with sin. And this is what we read in Hebrews 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, that's important, it can never, the law and the sacrificial system by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. It can never make perfect those who draw near. You have a lamb, it's not good enough to make you perfect. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would have no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So, so the, the blood of goats and, and the blood of bulls and all these things that were used for sacrifices, they were a reminder of the fact that Israel was still sinful. They had no power in actually freeing them from their sins. And then he contrasts that to Jesus. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said, Above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, that is Jesus added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first, that is the law and the sacrificial system, in order to establish the second. And by that will, Christ's will, we have been, here it is, sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That word sanctified there is not some process. That is a position. 
God, through Christ, has sanctified us, has made us holy through his death. And then he goes on to say this, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. His work was finished. Waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, catch this phrase, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That is, he has perfected for all time those of us who are still being made holy. That was his offering. You see, the reason why they were not able to enter behind the curtain to behold God was because sin was never actually dealt with through the sacrificial system. It merely reminded them of sin and it pointed to them, them to their need of a savior. And the reason the curtain is torn from top to bottom at Jesus' death is to convey that Christ's death unlike the animal sacrifices, is actually effective in dealing with human sin. And therefore, opening the way for sinful humanity to enter into the very presence of God and live. But not, not in some earthly temple, rather something far more glorious. The curtain being torn from top to bottom symbolizes that the earthly temple is no more because Christ through his death and resurrection rips open the heavens and takes his redeemed humanity into the very throne room of God's heavenly abode. As Hebrews 9.24 says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, the temple, the holy of holies, the holy place, those that on earth was made with hands. They were copies of the true things. Think about this. Jesus never entered the holy of holies on earth. Why? Because he became the new holy of holies. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God as a man on our behalf. Hebrews 10, 19 to 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, why do we have confidence? Because of Jesus. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places, that is the heavenly holy places, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Draw near to who? Draw near to God. With a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See, Christ, through his sacrifice, has opened the way for his re redeemed people to have access to God completely unhindered by sin. As Calvin states, For then Christ, the true and everlasting priest, having abolished the figures of the law, opened up for us by his blood the way to the heavenly sanctuary, that we may no longer stand at a distance within the porch, 
but may freely advance into the presence of God. Thus rending, thus the rending of the veil was not only an abrogation of the ceremonies which, which existed under the law, but was in some respects an opening of heaven that God may now invite the members of his son to approach him with familiarity. You remember how I had said that unlike at his baptism, there is no moment on the cross where the heavens are ripped open and the spirit descends on Jesus like a dove and the father speaks from heaven, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. You don't see that while he hangs upon the cross. But when that curtain is torn from top to bottom, something even more glorious has taken place. For the tearing of the curtain symbolizes the tearing open of the heavens so that all who are in Christ may freely enter in and abide in the very presence of God, never to be cast out, never to be obstructed by sin. That curtain being torn from top to bottom was in fact God's declaration, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Which is why the most unlikely of candidates comes to the conclusion through everything that he observes that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 39, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. We're not told exactly what it was that led this Gentile man to conclude Jesus was the Son of God? Was it the things he heard Jesus say from the cross? Was it the darkness that descended over Jerusalem? We don't fully know. But here's what we do know theologically. When Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus tells him, Blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And this is also true of this centurion. God, through the power of the Spirit, revealed to this man that Jesus was none other than the Son of God. And you know what? His understanding was actually greater than that of the Apostle Peter's at this time. Peter believed Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. But he still thought that the Messiah would be this political deliverer that, that would deliver Israel from Rome. That's why he was offended when Jesus spoke about his own suffering and death. That's why he rebuked Jesus. But this centurion, this Gentile man, we're told, stood facing him. Facing who? The crucified, suffering Son of God. And in seeing the suffering Jesus, he believed that he was beholding the Son of God. You know, it's not a coincidence that at Jesus' crucifixion and death, the first convert, so to speak, is a Gentile. With the tearing of the curtain, not only was God declaring that the way to him is now open, but also that salvation has come not only for the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. In fact, this centurion is the first example of Jesus' words when he said in John 12, 32 to 33, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. 
Not only Jews, but people from every nation, tribe, and tongue will be drawn to Jesus. And this centurion is the proof that Jesus' death will indeed draw the world to himself. Here in seeing Jesus hanging upon the cross, breathing his last and dying breath, we are beholding the Son of God. Well, it's interesting that we have come full circle. The Gospel of Mark began with these words, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark, in writing this Gospel account of Jesus' life, seeks to convince his readers that the one they are reading about is in fact none other than the Son of God, and that he is worthy to be followed and worshipped as the Son of God. So how do we respond Well, for one, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, whether you're a child, whether you're in high school, whether you're an adult, you need to see that everything we have looked at here this morning is so that you would see that Jesus alone is able to save you from your sins and grant you everlasting fellowship with the God who made you. That Jesus died in the place of sinners and bore the just condemnation, condemnation of God so that you could know the forgiveness of sins, but even better, have access and fellowship and relationship with the God who created you. You were made to know this God of love and Jesus has done all that is necessary for you to know this God. But you must, like the centurion, believe that Jesus is who he is, and follow him. Will you doubt and mock him as the religious leaders did, or will you, like this centurion, believe and exclaim, truly this man was the Son of God. Truly this man is the Son of God. Secondly, and this is for those of you who are in Christ, brothers and sisters in the Lord, We need to understand and grasp the privilege and honor that it is to live on the other side of the cross. That because of the blood of Jesus, each of us as individuals have direct access by faith into the very throne room of God. There is no barrier in place. Nothing to prevent us from residing in the presence of God because Jesus has gone before us into the very presence of God on our behalf. The privilege and honor that we have for being new covenant believers. Not only do we need to grasp the honor and privilege that we have as individuals, but we also need to realize the honor And privilege it is that we can gather as the people of God corporately to worship God because of the blood of the Lamb. That by faith in Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit, when we gather together for worship, we are granted access to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Think about this. None of us this morning came to our corporate worship with a goat or a bull or a lamb. Praise God. None of us had to do any ceremonial washing this morning, though I hope you did shower. There's no curtain here forbidding us from entering into the presence of God lest we die. 
Do you understand what we are seeking to do here when we gather for worship? We're not simply here to be religious. We're not simply here to have community, though that's important. We're not even here simply to be instructed in the truth of God's word and to understand God's word. If all you get from church is understanding God's word, understand you have not experienced true worship. Satan understands God's word. He doesn't worship God for it. We are here by the spirit of God for the glory of God, seeking to commune with God and to behold God in the face of Jesus. Which means, I think we ought to prepare ourselves before we come to worship God in the great congregation. If I'm honest, I think too many Christians approach the corporate worship of God in a very trivial manner. What have you done during the week, Saturday night, Sunday morning, to prepare yourself to meet with God in the gathering of God's people? Not only that, I think too many Christians lack commitment to the corporate worship of God. This was true before COVID, and it's even more true due to COVID. I cannot express to you the heaviness that I feel in my soul when I see so many Christians who seem to be just fine with coming to church once or twice a month. Or the heaviness I feel when I hear the kinds of things that are used by Christians to justify not coming to worship with the people of God. There is an indifference a lack of commitment to the worship of the triune God in the church of Jesus Christ. And hear me, brothers and sisters. Jesus did not bear the curse of God and shed his blood for our sins and rip open the heavens so that we might have direct access to the presence of God for us to approach the worship of God with a lack of commitment and a spirit of indifference. I hope and pray that we here at RYBC would treasure our corporate worship with everything in us because our worship was purchased by the blood of the Lamb and that by the power of the Spirit, each of us would give ourselves in full abandon to the worship of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is worthy of such worship. He is worthy of our devotion. He is worthy of our commitment and our praise. He is worthy of our reverence. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good work, good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let us not neglect the gathering of God's people for the worship of the glory of God. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your Son who became a curse for us so that we might become blessed. Lord, forgive us for the indifference in which we approach you in worship. And in your mercy, stir our hearts to be moved with awe and wonder at the God that we worship. In Christ's name, amen.